Hi, everyone. I'm Jessica Menhas, and welcome to Awkward First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. We are joined with our first couple guests today. So fun. Married couple Kevin and Jennifer Saunders shared their journey of raising a young child with disabilities as very young adults themselves and what working through their mental health has looked like and basically like why therapy because why therapy is hard. So like, why would you want to do it? (laughs) Kevin and Jennifer both share very like honestly and candidly about why it's worth it, how you can get it and what support looks like and what community support looks like. I can't wait for you guys to hear the episode and tell me what you think. Hey everyone and welcome to I'll Go First. I am joined by a couple, our first couple on the podcast, married couple. There we go. Jennifer and Kevin Saunders. Kevin and I met at a loud summit about mental health. Kevin is an amazing spoken word artist. Oh, stop. <laughs> he is. So good. Oh. <laughs> he runs um, a company called KS4 Inspiration. That's right. And Jennifer is a pedi- pediatric nurse. Yes. I'm a nurse practitioner, and I practice as a RN, a registered nurse. And um, I also teach. I'm a clinical adjunct professor at Pace University. What is it that you teach? Uh, pediatric nursing. That is so cool. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about your company? Yes, sure, sure. So uh, KS for Inspiration, the purpose of it is to provide inspiration and education to the next generation. We're just trying to help the next generation, particularly middle school, high school, and college students, start to set more meaningful goals. We want them to tap into their passion, into their purpose, and realize uh, they don't need to make all of their decisions based upon just finite material things, which are important, but are not as important as understanding why you're here on this earth and what your role is why you're here. We actually had Caleb Perkins on the show. Yes. Kevin knows Caleb. We all spoke at the Loud Summit. Right. And it was funny because he's really passionate about purpose for young people as well. And I hear you talk about elementary, middle school, high school. And I don't know what it is, but when I think of teenagers, so my husband and I think about have kids. And I'm like, I could maybe, yeah, okay, I'm coming around to it. But then when I see teenagers, I'm like, no, no, kid, no. Right. So like yep. the fact that you're passionate about that age group, like yes. bless you props to you (laughs) that is special i understand that teenagers are not the easiest demographic to reach because they're really in such a pivotal time of their lives and for that very reason that is why i go to speak to them because they're in this weird place where they may not feel comfortable confiding in their parents who have raised them all their lives. And they may be introduced to influences around them that may not be the most healthy, but they may not be at a stage where they can discern those positive relationships from the negative ones. On top of that, they're trying to figure out who they are. So just having a little bit of uh, infusion of positivity and Really encouraging them to look forward into the future is very important. That is why we go to that age group. How in the world do you get them to pay attention? <laughs> Poetry. Oh, <okay. laughs> now you yeah, see where it all comes yeah. to. <laughs> right. 
okay. So hopefully we'll get to hear a little bit about that later. But you're also online, so we can definitely check out some of your clips as well. Oh, certainly. We're all over. You're the place. everywhere. Yes. We <laughs> gotta everywhere. be now. I mean, that's I where understand. The, that's, that's where, where the, the teenagers exactly. are. Exactly. Right. We gotta go. I'm everywhere except for Snapchat. Wait. I refuse to uh, go. I was just gonna ask you about that. <laughs> I refuse to go to I was Snapchat. Ask you about that. That's where I draw the line. They don't want me there. I don't want to be there. That's fine. Let's go to Instagram. <laughs> and that is called Boundaries with Children. That's right. That's it. <laughs> you guys have two children. We do. Mm-hmm. There's Isaiah and Noah. Noah. Yes. yes. I love those names. Thank you. What I loved about your story, Kevin and Jennifer, is the story of Isaiah. He has cerebral palsy. Yes, correct. Um, To see (laughs) just the calmness and the peacefulness you have despite this major challenge in your life. Can you give us a high high version of what is happening in your home? Yeah. Sure. Sure. So currently, the four of us live at home. We live in Yonkers. Isaiah is nine years old and Noah is almost six. He's five, turning six in December. Isaiah was born extremely premature. So we had him uh, when I was only 23 weeks pregnant. So we And went, you were how old at that point? I was 23. Yes, I was a baby. 23 weeks pregnant. Correct. Age 23. Yep. 23. Imagine, everyone listening, imagine you have just graduated college. (laughs) You have a very premature birth. Yes. Just started her career, started nursing. I did, yeah. Yeah. We were babies. So, yeah, so Isaiah was born extremely premature, and um, he had a really, really, really rough hospital course. He stayed in the NICU for almost five months, the neonatal intensive ICU. And um, after coming home, at almost five months old, he um, had multiple, multiple hospital readmissions, um, multiple pneumonias and colds and flus and anything that you could think of. So it was really, really rough. Uh, the first, I want to say three months of his, three years, excuse me, of his life, we actually lived in a rehab center for about 14 months prior to him coming home when he was three years old. So it was a, a rough Three years. Yes. It was um, a long, 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 road. rough three years. And then you arrived at 26. Right. And then when he 26 came. Year, you're only 26 years old. You've already gone right. through all this stuff. That's right. right. And then when he came home, I was actually pregnant with Noah. So yeah. that, wow. was a, that was a rough one. Yeah. yeah. And I was on a complete bed rest for that. So that was a tough time in our lives it's funny we don't even think about it though now like we almost forget about the fact that that even happened unless someone brings it up i'm like oh wow yeah that was rough that was rough i mean i can't imagine i'm just thinking of myself when i was 23 and to put a child's life in my hands would have been highly irresponsible (laughs) of anyone (laughs) no (laughs) did you know that that there might be something going on before Isaiah was born? We did. So at about 21 weeks, I just felt really sick. And I just so happened to have a regular checkup. And when I went, I remember the doctor saying, you know, you have to be on bed rest because your cervix is opening prematurely. So I'm like, okay, you know, go on bed rest. And two weeks later, went back for another checkup. Nothing changed. And I had to be admitted right away because... I was in active labor. So I I kind of had an idea for two weeks. And then I think about five days we were able to postpone me giving birth. And during that time, right before giving birth, the doctor came in to Kev and I and said, listen, 
you know, New York State says that your child is not viable yet, that, you know, at 24 weeks is when you can actually give birth to a child who is viable. So it's your decision now if you want us to do everything we can for your child or if you want us to just stop right now, you give birth and we do nothing. And we just looked at each other and we said, nope, do everything that you can. So that's where... We are now. Was it like a just a natural switch? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. We're not I don't even think, think I even. About this. I don't even remember. There was, there was no, no conversation. There was no discussion. Yeah, we there just. Was, we just said just, no, no. No, that's our you child. Have to do please. everything you can. What was going so. on for you, Kevin, during this whole time? I can't imagine as a new dad. Well, it was a a struggle to understand that Isaiah may not be quote unquote a normal child as people may want to call him that he may have some issues at that point in time when they were trying to ask us what we wanted to do they did let us know the risk that you know him coming out uh, he can have you know you know brain damage or you know you know lungs underdeveloped you know and certain aspects of what they explained ended up coming to pass. But even with that being explained... What kind of aspects? So what happened was Isaiah, once he was born, uh, he had chronic lung disease in the very beginning, uh, meaning his lungs were underdeveloped. And with those underdeveloped lungs, that means he had to be intubated for a period of time. Which means they had this tube stuck through. Going and how lungs big is he? He's like the size of so your hand. He was hand. one pound six ounces, so very, he fit in small. the palm of our hands when he was born. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and he did. Building off of that, he was of course delayed, right? Because babies, you go to nine months really before they reach term. So he had to do the remainder of his four months of growing, which should have been in a womb, inside an ICU in what looked like just an incubator. And we would come and uh, we would do our best to hold them and spend time with them and try to feed Jen. we try to feed them and do all this stuff. But we would have to go home each night. Isaiah would have to stay there. And then we'd have to come back the next day, spend our time. And it was just like that for really the four months he was, you know, after he was born. So we got home finally in December. We had a welcome home party with family and friends like a week before, before he got home. He got home. Uh, but it was a sort of short-lived in a sense because from that time going forward for really the next three years, we we're in and out the hospital. So it was frustrating. And I was working at the time, Right. I was I found myself in a place where I was very upset and I could not focus on work so much so that just one day I remember it was the Martin Luther King Day holiday. I was off from work and I was like, I can't even even fathom going to work tomorrow. So I literally just called my boss the next day and I was like, listen, I really cannot focus on anything right now except for Isaiah. You know, I'm just giving you my two weeks. I couldn't do it. Formally consent wow. an email, couldn't do anything like wow. that. Wow. We were talking about this a little earlier, but I know I can't even think of the statistics, but I know the statistics are so high mm-hmm. for couples who either have an unfortunate accident with their child or a life-altering situation with a, with the other spouse right. or um, a child passes, unfortunately, and the divorce rate could up so much right it how does. in the world 
you guys yeah keep it together I, god only <laughs> we uh, actually when we had isaiah we weren't married yet we were actually engaged um and we got married when he was 10 months old so you so, had, you yeah got, you got you were pregnant right you had isaiah right so early so you were in and out of the hospital then he comes home and then you're still back and forth with the hospital you fortunately kevin you had some time from work right. and then you got married we did how yes. in the world did you we i can't even imagine planning wedding. a wedding <laughs> like i didn't do <laughs> I, much I planning you. i think a lot of my my family and friends did most of it the only thing i remember doing was picking the venue and picking my dress that's yeah. about it. it sounds like you guys just had an incredible community so community right. was really a part of this yes. and then kevin you said that you guys were really just in sync Yes. What did, what did, how? <laughs> uh, we, we talked a lot. Actually, how it worked was because Isaiah was born so early, I was still living at my parents' house. Jen was still living at her parents' house. And when all this happened, I literally had to move in with Jen at her parents' house that basically within that week, right? Yes. That Isaiah was born. Cause I wasn't mm-hmm. going to be in Yonkers. Jen being Queens, and then she would be like the only one uh, dealing with going to the hospital back and forth. I needed to be there for her. I need to be there for Isaiah. So what ended up happening was we're now in one room, right, (laughs) in uh, her parents' house, and we see each other every day, right? Right. (laughs) And we spent a lot of time with each other, just like we did going back to our college days. Just the making, creating the opportunity to speak and converse and really share what we're feeling in the moment is what I think allowed us to stay close together. How did you figure out how to share your feelings with each other? You know, I don't know if you remember this, Kev. One of the things that we did, especially when Isaiah came home, is we took shifts with taking care of him because he needed 24-hour care. It wasn't just like you have a baby who comes home and you have to feed them and, you know, change them, burp them. It was a lot of medical care that had to go into um, taking care of Isaiah. So Kev would do the day shift and I would do the night shift. So that's how we kind of, we would like to kind of like a either six on, six off type of thing (laughs) and then sleep. That's how we actually, and then my mom and dad were awesome too. Um, My mom would help out a lot and my dad would do a lot for us so just had a lot of family support at that time and we just realized okay so this is how life is going to be we just have to make it work that's right and yeah so you like committed we just like that moment in the hospital you just decided that was it it just came to mind that moment in the hospital where the doctor says you know this is your choice right and i'm just curious like do people question your choice on that Yes, all the time. Even the same doctor who said that to us, she's wonderful. And I believe she's one of the only reasons why Isaiah is here. She was the NICU doctor and she said, you know, this is a choice. And I just need you both to understand what could happen if your child makes it past these first few stages, first few days, first few hours of being in the NICU, that this can be a life altering decision. So I actually worked with her for a couple of years after that. And as, as a nurse as a practitioner, nurse, yeah. Worked, I didn't work um, in the same department, but I would see her as a, a registered nurse. And every time she saw me, she would say, I have never seen a baby that was born so early and has survived. 
I just, I just don't understand. You guys are both so young. How did you do this? And she constantly, and I last saw her at a conference, I think it was last April. And she said, how is Isaiah? I still just can't believe that he's alive and that he made it this far. And she always asked us what made us, you know, decide to do this. And it's always, it comes back to our faith and just that, you know, we felt that God placed this child to be with us. And that's what we decided we were going to do, raise him and let him have the happiest life possible. What kind of messaging do you, and lessons have you learned sort of along this journey about how to go from despair to hope? Right. So Kevin and I, we've spoke about that before. We we deal with um, Isaiah and situations in life a lot differently from one another. We always end up on the same page, but the route that we get there is always completely different. I am always in go, 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 go mode, and I just get things done, and I do it, and I don't think about it until maybe even months, years later. So, I mean, talking it out is what I learned to do. We talk a lot. I uh, confide in my family, um, in Kev, in friends, and I even, I did start going to therapy, and that helped a lot. That helped a lot. I really... What made you decide to go to therapy? Well, I think... It was because I realized, I'm like, well, I can't wait till things are wrong to <laughs> to go and see a therapist. If I feel like they may be okay, but maybe they're not. I'm not sure. Let's go talk it out. I think it's great to have someone where you can, um, that's completely removed from the situation. And it can, it can give a enlightened perspective on things that are going on. And from that, I learned you know, a lot of other things that I didn't even realize were going on in my head subconsciously were coming to light. What were some of the things that like kind of surprised you about that, that process? I think one of the, I think I told you this, Kev, I can't remember, but one of the most poignant things I learned is that just because you feel that you have to offer somebody else help doesn't mean that they have to accept your help. Oh, so we're talking about boundaries. Right, right. I always feel like, okay, well, I should do this. I should help this person. I should, I got to go there. I got to do that. And the therapist told me to calm down. Oh. Yeah. Like straight up? Calm down. Oh, wow. And set it apart. Wow. So really taking that time for yourself. Was that hard for you? It was because I didn't realize, I thought I was being a good person. And she said, you are a good person. You're doing it from a good part of your heart, but that doesn't mean that that's what somebody else wants or needs. It might actually actually just be making you feel better about the situation. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That so, is deep. And you, think, you, wow, I that is was, so, I think isn't that awesome. funny because we yeah. think that we're trying to, right. we're supporting somebody, but, right. but subconsciously it's just making us feel better about the situation because then we have control as to what's going on. There was something I learned in in some of my counseling training. I am not a trained counselor, by the way. Any listeners who are listening right now, do not take my advice as medical advice. Please definitely seek out your own therapy. But when I neither am I, by the way. Yeah, none of us are. But when when um, when I was was doing some counseling education, and they always talked about this, like when you're working with a client um, or when you're talking with a friend who's going through something, not to hand them a tissue. Right, because it dismisses what they're what's happening right. Let for them. Let them feel what they feel. Yes, right. because otherwise you're truncating that experience for them, and that offering that tissue is more about you and your um, wanting to help them and just make the situation. Yeah, because it's uncomfortable for it. you, right? So that you, you have to like do something to like solve it, right? 
or, or calm it down. But yeah, actually mm-hmm. letting people feel their feelings Let and holding feel space for that is Absolutely. way more mm-hmm. supportive. So yeah, so a- apart from from that, the you know the talking it out either with family therapy. I also think that it was very poignant to remember that I'm not an island, that I can ask other people to help me with things. I do not need to be in charge of A, B, C, D to Z. I can say, hey, Kev, can you help me out with this, please? Or I really need help. Or Was that hard? Because you, you were talking just now about like how driven you are and how you it get things hard. done. It was hard because I always, my biggest issue was a control issue and having to always yeah. be. Did you realize that about yourself before? No, I did not. I did not. It also ties in with faith, too. I think that I learned we took a class a couple of years back called Who Am I at church? And I learned that that is my biggest issue of not not realizing that I am not the one that's in control. Yeah. Yeah. So if I felt better by saying, OK, if I do this and then I do that, then I can prevent this from happening. And then this will go this way. So you're almost like hyper vigilant. Like um, I, I. Yes. Where, there we go. When did that? That's a perfect word. When did that start for you? Was that always how you were as a kid? <laughs> I think that it started with Isaiah. I think because I realized, okay, if we prevent, you know, this from happening, maybe we could prevent him from getting a cold, and then he won't have to go to the hospital, and then we'll prevent this and that. And so that just was how my mind has been working for the past nine years. I'd say the past seven, six and a half, seven. I've been realizing, okay, no, it's not you. You got to let go and let God. Yeah. One thing we talk about in trauma recovery is that as kids, if you've gone through something, you're like thinking like 12 steps ahead just to try and like strategize so you're not put in that situation again. And for me personally, it's been hard to like reel that back in and be present and think about the moment without bending my wheels. And I think that really brings us out of, you know, the experience that we can have with each other. So when your um, when your counselor sort of worked with you and you sort of started getting um, illuminated to that, like uh, for me, when I started getting illuminated to that, I was like, man, but I'm really good at that. Right. That's the thing I'm really good at. Right. So I don't take that away from me. Right. I did try and justify it at first. I was like, yeah, I hear you, but I'm pretty sure that she needs my help or (laughs) I'm pretty sure Kev would like me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But she was like, "Okay, but you have to understand that's what you're feeling. That may not be what they're feeling. So how did you self-soothe then? Like, how did you how did you calm yourself down in those moments when like you're like, oh, man, here it comes. I think it just worked for me. I I said to myself, all right, Jen, this is the professional here. Like you're coming here because you're seeking help. If she, it didn't take too long to convince me. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. After a couple of times of saying, well, but I think, and then she would counteract and I would say, all right, you know what? I think you're right. And now as I look at the situation, I see a difference. I what really do, do see? see a difference. Another thing that Kev, you know, taught me too is that not having to do everything for somebody, but just being present in the moment. I was never present. I was always thinking about how I could help or how I could do this or what would be best. And I was never just present. So just learning, the therapist didn't tell me that one though. That was Dr. Kev. Well, thank you. That one. (laughs) Kevin Saunders. (laughs) Just being present in, in moments and enjoying them, which I I thought I did, but I wasn't. I was always thinking, okay, now after this, we're going to do this. And it's just now it's a lot. I can say that I sit back a lot more and I'm able to relax a little bit more. 
Oh my gosh! I think so. Would you agree? To be at rest. I would certainly say that is the case. Okay. <laughs> what it, what if sort of you noticed in this journey? Because it's interesting yeah. when when we have an observer. Yes. Walking alongside of when we're working through our mental health or mental wellness process and, and really diving into those like kind of hard places. What was that like for you? You know, there were dark, there were some pretty dark times because, you know, Jen is working through something that, you know, I worked through earlier in my own way. Um, and now she's going through it and it's visible, it's noticeable, and we feel drawn apart by it and it's evident to the point where we have to talk about this being drawn apart right both of us notice it i think um i was very good at suppressing anything that i was feeling with isaiah i think we can be really we're all very good at right right there's a saying what's best will be expressed exactly so it took seven years for it to come out i think that I started having some anxiety, a lot, some is an understatement, a lot of anxiety in about uh, 2017. What did that look like for, for you? For me, like just very, very, uh, very functional anxiety and depression. Like I could go to work, I can get up and go to work, I can take care of home, but I was just extremely, extremely anxious. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, the only person who knew was Kev. Yes. And aside from that, it was functional for a while, but there was a point where it got, right. it was no longer functional. And that's when right. the therapy came in and we started to see Jen come out of it. But from my perspective, what it felt like was distance. It felt like walking on eggshells around right. individuals, especially when, you know, you feel like everything is going right and going better, but no matter what, someone else is feeling off and down and there's nothing you could do to help. So you feel helpless as well, Mm -hmm. right? So knowing that I couldn't cure whatever it is that she's going through, I encouraged her, why don't you go try to talk this out with therapy? Because Right. We can't continue going on like this. Whatever the divide is now, it will only get bigger if we don't get help. Right. Uh, so thankfully, Jen did go. Jen, you were responsive to that. I was, yeah. I thought that it was, yeah. I mean, I also, I did also confide in my mom. And she did, you know, of course, right. express the same sentiment. But I think the key thing is to still go when you feel okay. Yeah. Wow! I think yeah, because so. yeah. it's, it's easy to think that we're we're all good. But I'm, I right. I agree I agree with that. I found in my personal journey with healing from my own traumas that I, I guess I kind of look at it like going to a counselor is like going to get some personal training, right? And then you're at the gym with those tools that you've learned yeah. over time, and then yeah, going in for a checkup, absolutely, to make sure you got your form right, right. And you're doing and you're maxing it out. You know that you're right. really pushing yourself in the ways that are good. It's amazing yeah. that you were receptive to it because I, yeah, I think it's I, really hard to be receptive to someone else. Right. I think I think because I just hated feeling the way I was feeling and I'm like, no, we got to we got to fix this. Yeah, I think it was a consensus. Um, Not like I felt like Kev was like, oh, no, you got to do this. I I felt the same way. What would you tell someone who maybe is listening and thinking like, "Mm -mm, no, mm -mm. no, thank you. I'm good. I got this. Right. I mean, it's it's a personal decision. You can't force anyone to do something that they don't want to do. But I I personally feel that it's been of great benefit and i would recommend it to anyone 
I think, you know, if you're you're struggling or not struggling, um, if you feel like you're good or you feel like you're not so good, you should just go and check it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. And you actually brought some some resources for yes. maybe some for some families or loved ones who are right. listening that might be going through a similar situation with their with their child. Right, correct. So um there is one website that actually if you go to it, you can find everything you need in terms of resources. It's called specialneedsplanning.net. They list different organizations that can help you receive services for your child in terms of advocacy, either teach you how to advocate for your child or set you up with someone who would be able to do that for you. Different government agencies and um Social Security income that can help you pay for different expenses if you are having a tough financial time, teaching you how to navigate insurance and health care, medical options that you have, even different housing organizations. They can, they can hook you up with a lot of different things that you may need. In terms of caregiver support, which I think is a huge thing, caregiver burnout is real. Yeah. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's a tell real me thing. tell me a little bit about right. both so, of your experiences with that. Right. Yeah. So we didn't have help with Isaiah for almost 3 years. We did have a nurse for him for a couple hours a day at one point when we were home, but we were hardly home. Right. <laughs> we were always living in a hospital. So wow. we did have uh, quite a bit of burnout. For the past six years, we have had nursing care for him. So even the reason we're able to be here today is because Isaiah has a nurse with him if we're not at home. Mm-hmm. And we he also, you know, has a nurse when we're able, so we're able to work. And it just, it just really helps a lot. When did you know that, did you feel the same way, Kevin, that you like a little burned out? As I a did. caregiver? I did. Uh, just to give people a sense of what the days were like when we were living in the hospital, we were at Blythdale's Children's Hospital, which is an outstanding facility, uh, sort for of a rehab. rehab facility for children. And it, let's say that night I happened to spend the night with Isaiah because we would never leave him in the hospital by himself without one of us there, right? So I would spend the night. At that point in time, I was back to work. So they had a house not too far from the hospital. We just would be able to stay in there a few days at a time, go to that house, get dressed, get ready for work, drive to Stanford, Connecticut, work for the day, come back to the hospital, relieve Jen if she was there all day oh for goodness. a few hours. All right, maybe she's staying the night. Maybe I'm staying the night. If I'm staying the night, that means I woke up in the morning, went to work, came back, and then stayed in the hospital again. Is there a bed for you? Or are you guys the sleeping couch in a chair? Flipped, a couch. A, flipped into a flat bed. It actually wasn't wow. that uncomfortable. <laughs> I, or maybe we grew used to it. I don't even know. But, you know, after you spent two, three years living out of a hospital. You were literally you really living out of a hospital. That's yeah, not like hyperbole. Had, we no. had bags no. that we'd take Like we us. bought groceries and put it in the hospital fridge. Right. And what helped was <laughs> that we had our parents, right. well, my parents, Very 20 close. minutes away. So, you know, if we wanted to just go to their house, get a meal, maybe one of us spend a night there every once in a while. And then my parents would come. Sometimes right. the, my dad would stay the night. Sometimes my oh, mom would come. Oh, that's so nice. They'll relieve Jen's parents. Thanks, mom and dad. Thank you. Seriously, thank you. 
So yeah. again, did you ever feel guilty system. leaving? Like, were there times when you just could not, neither of you were just not able to, and no family were able to just that one night spend the night? Did you, how did you deal with that? No, we never had that at Blythedale. No. So we, you were there tw- never a day when right. Isaiah was in the we hospital. Did, we did was have, he by himself. So. Right. We did That's have incredible. Um, one time when he was at another hospital, there was a snowstorm and we couldn't get there. I think we got home, but weren't able to get back. Um, so that was rough. But and when in the beginning, when he was in the NICU, we couldn't we couldn't stay, stay overnight. Right, you're not allowed to stay in the neonatal ICU because those children are very unstable conditions. So right. they and they're just at, at, there weren't um, any accommodations yeah. either. Yeah, right. so they wouldn't. You know, they would tell us to go home. What would you tell other parents who are like, I'm exhausted? Yeah, yeah that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. So. Again, there are services for caregivers. Even if you're having something called caregiver burnout, they have respite care. Caregiver burnout can look so different for it everybody. Could. It could. What What did it look like for like you waking up in the morning, Jennifer? What was that right. like? Well, I think, I, again, I don't remember being burnt out. I don't remember being burnt out, but I know I was in retrospect. I remember waking up and just feeling like, okay, this is what we got to do. We're going to do it. Yeah. That's it. I think there was a point in time where this became such the normal course of action for right. us. And it happened pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, because prior to going to Blythedale, we were in, you know, two Queens hospitals, Long Island hospitals for a period of time. At some point, it became a way of life right. to the point that we will probably wouldn't even recognize what the burnout was. Right. Um, yeah, because it just became it normal. It just became what it was. Normal. But I will say that even if that was burnout for us, that type of schedule that I described, we were in a fortunate position to have someone Outlets. at least relieve us for three, four hours right. at a time. Right. I don't know what we would do if we didn't have that. Mm-hmm. So... There are people out there who are going through similar situations that have no relief. Those people, I seriously, I feel for you all. Uh, you have my prayers. I don't know from my perspective what that would feel like. All I could say is these resources that Jen is providing, if you find yourself in need of help, please seek it. The, uh, having a child that's ill or uh, just... In general, let's just break it down to people who are struggling in life. There is nothing that you have to go through alone, especially if you live in this country, right? This country allows us so many resources, so many outlets to ask for help. There are so many nonprofits that go the extra mile for individuals, don't be too prideful to ask for help if you do find yourself in a point where you're burnt out, uh, burnt out without help around you. Yeah, yeah. I know for me in human rights, being burnt out, like we call it, um, empathy burnout. Right. It looked like I wasn't sleeping. I was mm-hmm. starting to get really cynical. Yes. And making like really inappropriate jobs <laughs> yes. in the wrong communities. Right. I was just. I just my. Fuse got really, really short. Absolutely. Couldn't find joy and stuff. Mm. My mind was just like kind of 
again, hypervigilant, trying to like problem solve. And I just wasn't, like you're saying, Jen and Kevin, like I just wasn't present. Right. And for me, that's when I kind of knew I was just getting more and more depressed. depressed. Like I got sucked into that tragedy that I was really there and hoping to try and support these people. Right. Yeah. It right. sounds like a sense of hopelessness, right? When you're not yeah, I think you like knocked the it on the head, yeah. That you had intended to make or when you start to see the issue is so grand that you alone will not be able to tackle it. Right. You and feel defeated. That can be debilitating. Yeah. It could also be empowering because when we're talking about purpose and uh, what I'm about to explain is something that those in the six seconds community. So for those who don't know, six seconds is the emotional intelligence network. And I'm a uh, certified uh, social emotional intelligence practitioner. And one of the things uh, we talk about is knowing yourself and setting knowing what we call pursuing noble goals. Pursuing noble goals is really setting a goal that can't be achieved in your lifetime, right? That does no harm to others and many other criteria. But when you have this noble goal that you know, no matter how hard you try, it will never be accomplished in your life. You know that you're doing the work for the impact that you're making and not for the completion of it. Right. Wow. And that keep, that's something that will keep you aligned as you set other goals along that path. Mm-hmm. You could look at that noble goal as a North Star. I'm just thinking how that almost flips the idea of success on its head. Because right. like when I think of that concept, it's about, yeah, like accomplishing that goal and then on to the next one. But you're saying that actually maybe it isn't that. No, no. Complete. If you can complete the goal in your lifetime, you probably didn't set the goal high enough. Right. It's something that oh my you should you should be <laughs> wow. striving for continuously so that there is always something that you're pursuing and working toward. The trouble is when that noble goal is not noble and not tied to a purpose larger than yourself. Right. Then your goals become about you. They tend to become about the world and they tend to become about material. How do you know when you when that's happened? Well, look at your goals. Really think about what's important to you and what drives the decisions that you're making. Can you give us an example of what you're speaking to, a noble goal versus like another aspirational goal? So here's an example of my noble goal, which is to inspire others to live purposefully. I will never be able to complete that in my lifetime. There's six billion people plus in the world, if I got that number right, a whole lot more, I'm sure. Is that something I could achieve in my lifetime? No, but I can wake up every day and work toward that goal. I'm just saying, you know, like we we live in New York. Mm -hmm. We see on Instagram, we'll just go back to that gram. Right. Because that is such like a feature right now in the world, which drives me crazy. But what we see as goals are like, for some communities, it's graduating from college. For other people, it's like landing that job or even like um, getting married is like yeah. that's the goal or having kids is the goal. And that's yeah. what I'm working towards. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is like, no, it's more this like more noble goal. It's like what's the long term effect you're leaving on the world? But how do you reorient your directions so that you're okay with not accomplishing it. Oh yeah, well, you are accomplishing it in a sense when you're living it. 
right? It's just that it won't be completely accomplished, right? Because you'll never reach the whole world. There will always be dissension. So you're saying like you're already, you're kind of in the process of accomplishing it while you're moving towards it. While you're moving. And it just ties back to what I tell people (laughs) all the time. Like when you get caught up in the end result, the finish line, the completion, you'll completely miss the race, the progress. You spend one second at completion. You spend 25.99 miles in the race. You need to find your joy, your purpose, your passion, your mission within the race and not at the end of it. Because anytime you get to the end, what happens is relief, a letdown, right? You did it. Woo! Right, exactly. Yeah. Right? But that race, that adrenaline that's flowing while you're going through it, that's everything. That's that's your whole life. That's the whole process. So noble goal is keeping you aligned, right? It's a race that will never end, essentially. And then you can have like little short sprints along the way. And these short sprints are all different. It's fine. I'm not telling anybody, hey, you shouldn't aspire to own a home. You shouldn't aspire to get a nice job. I'm saying that if you're setting these goals, make sure you keep them in context, that these are not the end-all, be-all goals. These are steps along a path, right? These are steps in life. But if this is the goal for you to get this big mansion, once you get it, don't be surprised if you're disappointed. I think that if you're doing something with your heart, that it's going to transform every element of your life. Do something because you feel like it's going to make a difference, not because it's just feels good for a little bit. Right. I love that. And I think just about your story, too, and everything that you're you're kind of like embracing both that you can have purpose and that you can be living this fulfilled life even while you're struggling or even while, you know, this other stuff might be happening that's overwhelming and that there's resources out there. So we're going to put the resources in our show notes online and we'll definitely celebrate your work as well. Put your links in, Kevin, so that people can get involved with your work. I wish we had time for your spoken word um, poetry, but we will definitely again. Also, link in that. Yes. Thank you guys so much Thank for joining you. us yeah. today. I think there is so much wisdom in your story. And I'm, yeah, just so honored that you took the time to share it with us. Thank yeah. you for having us. It's our us. pleasure. Thank yes. you so much for having us. Peace to everybody out there. Appreciate it. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on All Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at Algo First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.